Good morning. Today's Bible reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is God's word. Great. Thanks, Andrew. Good to have you reading for us this morning. And can I also say thanks heaps to the music team today, guys who are uh, joining us for the first time serving in that way today. Uh, music's been great, and we really appreciate that. Thank God for you. Now, a few of us are a little tired this morning because we were celebrating uh, John and Mel's wedding yesterday, and uh, I'm pleased to report they are married, and we look forward to welcoming back Mr. and Mrs. Cheatham when they join us again in a couple of weeks, so praise God for that as well. Let's pray, and then we'll get into Matthew chapter 5, 13 to 16 together. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you so much for the words of Jesus, that we can hear him speak to us this morning. And we pray that indeed that would happen as your spirit carries your word into our hearts to transform us for your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we sat at Jesus' feet to hear the famous Beatitudes, uh, his announcement of blessing to those who are part of his kingdom and therefore now live under his kingship. And the key to blessing and true fulfillment as his disciples, as Jesus said, is to reject self-fulfillment in all its forms and realizing that we're poor in spirit, ask God to bless us abundantly and give us real fulfillment forever. Of course, the section ended with a, a serious warning from Jesus that those who belong to the kingdom now will face opposition from the world we live in. That's because the vision of the Beatitudes is utterly countercultural and always has been. Self-fulfillment is the religion of this present kingdom, and to reject it makes us the bad guys, the heretics, the blasphemers of the world. Now, of course, this puts Christians in a very difficult situation. Though our future is secure and our lives are being transformed daily to be in that kingdom, we're not there yet. And so we're destined to be the square peg in the round hole until Jesus comes back. So what are we meant to do right now? Well, I think a few options might appeal. The first is that we can withdraw we can retreat from the world into our own little Christian bubbles where we can live the way that Jesus wants, or at least the way we believe Jesus wants, until he comes back. This is what the, the monastic movement tended towards for centuries. We'll retreat into draft and, uh, drafty and damp old monasteries where we can pray six times a day. 
We can eat porridge, we can do some chanting, brew beer and bake bread, wear itchy clothes and wait for Jesus to come back, while quite literally the world goes to hell. If we don't want to withdraw, we can go undercover. We can try to be undercover agents for Jesus, preferably as deep undercover as we can possibly manage. We can heroically endure and tolerate the discomfort of the world around us while rocking the boat as little as humanly possible, hoping that no one ever asks us where we were on Sunday morning or never notices the Bible on our shelf at home because when Jesus comes back, it'll be all right in the end. So that's withdraw or go undercover. I think there's also a third option, and that's to get mad, to get angry at the world, to fight fire with fire, to fight outrage with outrage, to try to bully the world around us into seeing things our way. To use a word invented, actually, in Australia in the late 19th century, we can become Bible bashers. I think the problem with all these options, though, is that you cannot make them harmonize with what Jesus says to his disciples in verse 13 to 16 of Matthew 5, much less the very active characteristics of the blessed people that we read about in verse 1 to 12 last week. I think John Stott puts it well. We are neither to seek to preserve our holiness by escaping from the world, nor to sacrifice our holiness by conforming to the world. Escapism and conformism are thus both forbidden to us. So instead of retreating or compromising or getting mad with the world around us, Jesus' disciples, Jesus says, will be present in the world to influence it for the better. So we're going to look this morning at what Jesus says about our influence in the world. As I've said, we're in chapter, uh, verse 13 to 16 of Matthew chapter 5. It would be very helpful to you and to me if you had a Bible open with you. You can follow along with us with the words of Jesus. Well, let's talk about saltiness. Saltiness. This is our first heading if you're following on the outline this morning. In the ancient world, and even today in the Middle East, salt is a very valuable and useful thing. And there's actually an ancient custom that still persists in some very traditional Arab communities where after a baby is born, they are rubbed with olive oil and water and salt and wrapped up for seven days. And then after seven days, they're kind of re-rubbed and re-wrapped, and this continues up to the 40th day. Now, I know that sounds like a salad dressing, but it was apparently originally for hygiene reasons to prevent the baby getting infections and diseases. And there's even a reference in the Bible to this very practice in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 4. Furthermore, formal agreements were often marked with salt. The two parties would, would each eat a bit of salt together, maybe two parties to a business contract. And I understand it's still a, a, an Arab custom today to do that. The Old Testament even makes a reference to a covenant of salt between God and his people. And this is really because of a use for salt that we might be more familiar with. And that's the, the way salt is used as a preservative. And so, in an agreement, the salt symbolizes the preservation or the endurance of that agreement. Salting, of course, has been used just about for forever to preserve food. Uh, growing up in South Africa, my wife and I are partial to the dried meat called biltong. 
It's a delicacy that was invented by the pioneering settlers, and it's uh, made by curing strips of meat with vinegar and herbs and spices and plenty of salt before drying it out so it could be kept and eaten for months without being kept cold. So salt means cleansing, salt means preserving, salt means enduring. And here we were thinking it was just something we put on our uh, table to make bland food tastier. But of course that is another important property of salt, it makes things taste better. And this should help us understand what Jesus means when he says to his disciples in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. In other words, his disciples, those who belong to his kingdom and are blessed now according to the Beatitudes because of what is certain for them in the future, they will have a preserving and cleansing and improving influence on the world around them just by virtue of being there. Um, I've been reading Martin Lloyd-Jones' collection of sermons in these chapters, and he really likes to use the word putrefying to describe the state of our society. I think he's right. Our world is going bad at a moral level. It has a use-by date after which God will judge. But God's people in the world will have a preserving effect on the decaying world. And I think it's true to say that this preserving effect will even delay God's judgment on the world so that more people can come to faith in Christ and be spared eternal punishment for their sin. I want you to notice what Jesus says about salt here. He doesn't say, you must be the salt of the earth. He says, you are the salt of the earth. It's a statement of fact. It's just like what he says about them being light in verse 14. Now, I think we've got to understand what Jesus then expects of those who are the salt of the earth, his disciples, his kingdom people. For one thing, he expects his disciples to be recognizably different from the world, as much as salt is recognizably different from whatever it's applied to. For another thing, he expects his disciples to have a subtle but persistent effect on the world around them. As, as much as salt, when it's used rightly, is also it's subtle, but it's persistent. In other words, the metaphor of salt gives us a picture of individual disciples living consistently kingdom lives as the poor, as the meek, as peacemakers, the pure of heart, as those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, with a sober view of ourselves in the world, before the world, which will have a positive and preserving and cleansing effect on the world. So rather than getting on a soapbox to call out the godlessness in the world, this is the doctor or the nurse who shows a genuine love for their patients in such a way that makes them stop and think, what's different about that doctor? It's having wholesome conversation in the tea room without gossiping or bad language in a way which makes your workmates stop and think, what's, what's so different about them? It's about being quick to own your own mistakes and to receive criticism graciously at the office in a way which makes people stop and think, what's, what's different about them? It's asking your friends at school or uni, how are you doing? Not just because it's a way you say hi, but because you genuinely love them and are concerned for how they are. It means that whatever environment we find ourselves in, at work, in the classroom, our home, even online, 
that it is a better place because one of God's kingdom people is there. It's a picture of being a dad, a wife, a student, a chippy, a project manager, a receptionist, a shelf stacker, a financial advisor, whatever, who knows that everything they have comes from God, that they are part of His eternal kingdom even now. And because of that, they serve the Lord with everything they are, doing their work with excellence and showing a genuine love for those around them. You are the salt of the earth, says Jesus. But that's not all he says. He goes on to say in verse 13, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, I think someone with a bit of chemistry knowledge might like to say, Jesus, yes, but uh, sodium chloride is a very stable mineral compound and it cannot degrade or lose its essential properties over time. I had to look up if that was true. It is. Of course, Jesus was involved in the original creation of salt. I think he knows how it works. But I think that's the point here. Just as salt cannot be anything other than salty, sodium chloride cannot be anything other than sodium chloride, so followers of Jesus and, his, and citizens of his kingdom can't actually be anything else either. It's no use pretending otherwise. Of course, this idea is continued in what Jesus is going to say about light. We can't be anything other than what our essential nature is. It should remind us of those, those blessings Jesus spoke about at the beginning of the chapter. They're not something to aspire to. They're a statement of who we are if we belong to his kingdom. But salt in Jesus' day was really pure. It could be diluted by other minerals, even by sand and road dust, uh, which would make it impure and increasingly less salty. Now, of course, I, I can't imagine anyone's actually going to sit there with a pair of tweezers and try and remove the grains of salt from the grains of sand to make the salt salty again. No one's got time for that. Throw it out. Get rid of it. Get some new salt. Its saltiness cannot be restored, and it's useless. I think Jesus was well aware of this. So the point here is that our positive influence on the world is an all-or-nothing affair. There is no place for compromise, for diluting who we are, for trying to uh, dilute our essential identity and what we have in Christ to make it more palatable and more acceptable to the world around us. I think this comes as a huge surprise to us, but it's the mistake of so many churches that have been caught up in the, in the liberal or progressive Christianity movement of the last hundred years. You know, in wanting to appeal to the world around them, they reframe the Bible using modern, secular humanist ideas about sociology, science, history, and literature. And the end result is a form of Christianity which simply uses the Bible to affirm the values of the world. And you know what? People aren't stupid. If the church is telling me nothing different than from what I get on the ABC or from the self-help section at the bookshop or from Facebook, why should I bother going to church? It's no wonder that such churches are dying along with their last few faithful souls, though they might describe themselves as paragons of virtue in this enlightened age. 
We cannot dilute who we are, friends, without becoming unlike anything that God has made us to be. But by contrast, I think we can easily underestimate how attractive pure Christian discipleship is to those around us. It's very interesting. In a 2017 study on faith and belief in Australia, it found, and I quote, that the greatest attraction to investigating spirituality and religion in Australia today is seeing people who live out a genuine faith. Would you have ever thought that? It's not having an airtight argument for how the world came to be. It's not having an answer for all the things that go wrong in the world. I'll read it again. The greatest attraction to investigating spirituality and religion is seeing people who live out a genuine faith. And the report found that 62% of non-believers who were open to changing their, their religious views found this kind of authenticity attractive. And the same report found that the top reasons for considering a change in belief across four different generations wasn't reading a book or watching mainstream media or having a major crisis in their lives that made them ask existential questions. The top reason for considering a change of belief was having a conversation with someone, someone who was living out a genuine faith. Friends, pure Christian discipleship is incredibly attractive. And we mustn't kid ourselves otherwise. You are the salt of the earth. By contrast, hypocrisy among Christians is one of the biggest turnoffs of people. Now, we probably need to dig a little to understand whether they're turned off by what they think is hypocrisy or whether it's real hypocrisy. But consider what Michael, a young political science student, had to say about why he had given up on Christianity. He said, Christianity is something that if you really believed it, it would change your life and you would want to change the lives of others. I haven't seen too much of that. What an indictment. Here's someone who's willing to accept Christ, but he doesn't see authenticity in the followers of Christ. Friends, because we're part of God's kingdom now, we are his agents for preservation and cleansing and improving the world we live in for now. It's who we are. It's not the job of the church. It's not the job of lobby groups or political parties. It's the job of disciples. Wherever God in his wisdom has placed us, and we've got to remember it's an all-or-nothing affair. Let's continue to what Jesus says about light it's a similar idea, but it's from a different angle. This is the second point on the outline. Verse 14, Jesus says, you are, again, statement of fact, you are the light of the worlds. What does light do? It dispels darkness. I think we might have a hard time truly appreciating what Jesus is getting at here because we live in a time where it's almost impossible to find real darkness. Whether you know, There's always a light on somewhere in the dark, whether it's the kind of faint glow of city lights over the horizon or the sort of glowing screen in our pockets. You've got to go a long way out west before you can really see darkness at night. But in Jesus' time, there was no electric light at all. The only artificial light at night came from oil, fire, oil lamps and fires. And the contrast between dark and light was striking. Of course, this isn't about photons and real darkness and light. This is about 
hearts and souls. And our world tragically is a dark place. It's full of wickedness and evil and godlessness and unrighteousness. Our society is characterized by a general belief that God doesn't exist, so the only rules we're answerable to are the ones we make up to suit ourselves. Or if God does exist, he's got to get with our program. And so what Jesus said remains true today. John 3.19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. But the Christian cannot live in darkness. The Christian belongs to the light who has come into the world and so they cannot help but shine. And this is more the point Jesus is getting at. That's why he adds the parallel statement, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In this dark world, those who belong to the kingdom of Christ will unavoidably stand out. This is for disciples who are nervous or anxious about being noticed about being the kind of positive influence on the world that Jesus is calling them to. On the one hand, it's like salt. You can't avoid it. Good luck trying to follow Jesus in a world and not in the, in the world without standing out. We might as well be giving out uh, high-vis vests whenever we baptize someone. You can't hide your identity, your true identity, as a citizen of God's eternal kingdom. And so as a consequence, Jesus says, don't try to hide it. Don't let fear or worse, laziness or even worse, sin, put a basket over your light. This is kind of like a sanctified, if you've got it, flaunt it. But it's not in an arrogant, proud, kind of look at me sort of way. That would contradict the inward character Jesus has already described. So he tells them in verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let people see who you truly are, not for your sake, but for the sake of the God you belong to. This is, this is a very important point. We're not to be salt and light in the world just to raise the ethical temperature of the world around us. Our world doesn't need to be more good our world needs more God. And our saltiness and brightness in the world is meant to point unmistakably towards him. Basically, we're to behave as members of the kingdom so that when people notice us and ask us why we are different, we can say, well, let me tell you about Jesus. We're not talking about moralism. We're talking about evangelism. It's a call to have more courage in our words and actions, friends. Not because we're called to be better than we are, but because we're being called to be who we are. We so easily forget that Jesus shows us two very different responses that the world will have to those who belong to the kingdom and those who live it out in the world. Yes, verse 11, some will be offended by it and will revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. But others, verse 16, will see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
And often, I think, it won't be clear from a single interaction which it'll be, ultimately. Some will be offended that you won't join them in their sin, but they'll come to you later with a deeper respect for your integrity and a desire to know more about why you're so different. I've seen that happen. Of course, others will love you, but in the end they will turn on you because the day will come where you can't support or affirm what they want. But because we don't know which response we will ultimately get, we are called to rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, verse 12, and to be salt and light in the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. As we move to a close, you know, I, I love the ads that Aldi puts out. It's a bit of a shift, but I'll show you where I'm going in a moment. I think they're really clever uh, in a kind of low-budget, very economical sort of way. But I think their slogan's even better. Who knows what Aldi's slogan is? Good, different. That's right. Good, different. I think that's a great way to describe disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ in the world. Now, hopefully I've made it so whenever you see an Aldi ad ever again, it'll remind you who you're meant to be. <laughs> but in telling us that we are salt and light, Jesus is calling us to be who we are, to be good, different, this side of heaven, that people might know God. That the spaces you inhabit whether it's the office, the sports club, the, the ward, the kitchen table, the gym, the backyard, that they are better places because you are there. That the people around you notice that you have different values and different priorities, and even more, that they ask you why. And that even though people might get frustrated with you and make jokes about you, that you're actually still the person they know they need to talk to when life hits the fan. Because you seem to have a, com a contentment and a purpose that they just wish they had. Friends, if the kingdom of heaven really is ours, then we need to take Jesus' words here seriously, not as a burden, but as a statement of who we really are. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So let's be good, different, for the sake of the gospel. How about we pray? Father God, we hear the words of the challenge from Jesus this morning. And yes, we're anxious, we're scared, we might simply be lazy, have our priorities elsewhere. But Father, I pray that you would cap capture our hearts with the vision Jesus sets before us today. Lord, that we would remember who we truly are, who you have made us to be, knowing that, yes, we are clay jars, but you have put your spirit within us, a treasure within us. Let us be the salt of the earth and the light of the world so that people can see our good works and give glory to you. Please give us courage, strength, wisdom, humility, and great hope in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we move towards the end of our service, I invite you to stand and sing in response to God's word today. O 